Um, Dr. Malia, thanks for being here with us again today. So um, as you guys may be realizing, we're sort of clustering these lectures together and having some didactic lectures and then some more practical lectures, either about imaging, uh, ultrasonography, um, uh, chest x-ray interpretation. So today's lecture is going to be critical care ultrasonographic assessment of the LV and RV. Um, thank you again for being here to share this with us. All right, thank you. Um, so hello again. Um, as you can see from the, well, the sheer length of the title of the, the talk, this is a very broad topic or a very broad set of skills and, and principles. And my goal is to basically uh, extract um, what I think are sort of like the highest yield and most useful handful of techniques within within the uh, skill set of LV and RV assessment with ECHO uh, that are most applicable to sort of general critical care. So that's going to be the goal. And again, like last time, um, uh, we want this to be as interactive as possible. There's a lot of content, um, but I would like you guys, uh, I have the chat box open. So again, uh, please liberally use the chat box to either ask questions or answer whatever open-ended questions I may throw out there. Uh, or if you want to just unmute your mic and talk, please, please feel free. So cool. Let's, let's get started. So like I said, pretty broad topic. Uh, let's start by talking about the LV because you know, everyone cares about the LV. And last week we heard how much of a uh, uh, sort of a forgotten third cousin or second cousin the RV is. Uh, but we'll get to the RV, don't worry. But let's start by talking about the LV. So within the framework of critical care LV assessment, there's really two dimensions or two uh, properties that we can look at. We can look at LV systolic function, which is the thing that most people think about when they think about LV assessment. And there is also a role for some of the diastolic function evaluation in critical care. So as you guys recall, we'll start by talking about systolic function. As you guys recall from the summer education block and maybe from your previous uh, training, the bulk of LV systolic function assessment is really the qualitative assessment. So everything really begins with a qualitative assessment. Um, and you remember, again, we covered this during summer education block. We talked about, you know, the two uh, things that we look at when we do a, 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 a qualitative assessment of LV function. We look at the excursion, the movement of the various walls. Uh, and there's various analog to that, including looking at cavity size change, looking at the anterior mitral valve leaflet and how well it opens and slaps the septum, and then looking at the posterior mitral annulus and how well it moves left and right. The second and probably even more important property is looking at myocardial thickening. Uh, recall that during systole, the muscle uh, from each wall should almost double in thickness in systole versus diastole. And when we look, when we look at that, we should look at each individual wall. And so our overall goal is to arrive at this type of assessment when we do our qualitative assessment. Is the LV function normal? Is the LV hyperdynamic? Or is the LV dysfunctional or hypocontractile? And within LV dysfunction, how bad is it? Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe? And as we get better and better, is there global? Is there focal wall motion abnormalities? That kind of stuff. Okay. And again, as I say in radiology, one view is no view. It's the same thing in echo. So try and get as many views as possible and integrate the information from all those views to get to your complete assessment. Um, I'm going to go through the qualitative assessment fairly quick just because we've gone through this, but here is a normal heart in personal long axis view, normal LV function. As you can see, excursion, we again look at cavity size change. You can see that that LV cavity uh, in systole is about half the size as it is in diastole, so good cavity size change. We can see that when the mitral valve, the anterior leaflet opens, it looks like it's slapping the septum. And we look at the posterior mitral annulus here where the mitral valve attaches to the heart. Uh, you can see that that's moving left and right. That is excursion. The second component is thickening. So if you look at each 
wall here, you can see that the muscle is nearly doubling in thickness in systole when compared with diastole. So both those walls are doing that. So this is normal LV function. And again, most often, all you really need is a qualitative assessment. So for the bulk of what you do in acute care and critical care, a qualitative assessment of LV function is enough to help you do things like figure out why someone is in shock, and then to start figuring out what to do about it and make decisions about that. But there are a number of situations, a lot of situations, uh, where having a quantitative dimension to your LV function assessment is very useful. Um, so for example, if you're trying to predict a response to intervention, like volume responsiveness, trying to monitor the response to your chosen intervention, whether it be volume boluses or inotropes or what have you, or if the shock state is not as quite as straightforward to help you figure out the various types of shock physiologies that may be in play. So that's what I'm going to talk about uh, in the next few slides. So when we talk about the quantitative uh, LV function assessment, there's really two types of ways that we can assess the LV function quantitatively in the critical care setting. Uh, I think the most useful, of course, is trying to calculate the stroke volume and cardiac output, because uh, in the end, as intensivists, what we're interested in is flow. And so stroke volume and cardiac output very directly are measures of flow. Um, so we'll talk about how to use echo to measure and calculate flow. You can also use some of these sort of semi-quantitative analogs of ejection fraction, like fractional area change, or the Simpson volume change method to get an idea of what the quantitative ejection fraction about is. Um, we're not going to talk about that really uh, today. We will talk about the stroke volume calculation piece, because I think that's the most useful uh, and the easiest thing to follow. And we covered this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Uh, if you want me to go back and slow down, please let me know. But we covered this two weeks ago when we were talking about uh, volume responsiveness. So what we do uh, when we try to um, measure or estimate or calculate stroke volume and cardiac output is we utilize Doppler to calculate the volume of blood that's being ejected through the LVOT in systole, what's called the systolic flow velocity, or in physiologic terms, the stroke volume. Um, and we apply the Hagen-Poisel's Hagen law. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we apply that law to figure out how much blood is going through that tubular structure that is the LVOT during systole. And we apply that Poisel's equation that the flow velocity through a tubular structure of a compressible fluid is equal to the cross-sectional area times the velocity, or in other words, the pi r squared times the velocity. The first step is measuring or calculating that cross-sectional area. And the first step of that is measuring the LVOT diameter. We do that in our personal long axis view with the image frozen in systole. So when the aortic valve is open, find the uh, aortic annulus back up to the tad bit and measure perpendicularly the LVOT diameter. Conveniently in the average size adult, most adults have a LVOT diameter of two centimeters, which makes the calculation easy. Um, the second piece is measuring the velocity of blood going through the tubular LVOT, and we use pulse wave Doppler to do that in one of the views where the blood flow is parallel, so in the, either the apical 5 chamber or the apical 3 chamber view. And again, I'm just going through this fairly quickly because we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but please tell me slow down if you want me to. This is our apical 5 chamber view. It's the 4 chamber view where you angled anteriorly to bring in the aortic valve and the LVOT. We turn on Doppler, select pulsed wave Doppler, and what we do is we put our Doppler line down through that LVOT, line it up so it's as parallel as possible 
with the LVOT. We put our sampling volume. This is the place where we're going to be actually measuring the velocity just proximal to the aortic valve. So I'd probably actually move this down just a little bit more. We can use this little device here, which is corrects for angle. And then finally, we turn on our Doppler. And what we get is something that looks like this. So again, we saw this a couple weeks ago. This is the velocity time tracing or signature of blood being shot out of the LVOT down in this direction. So down velocity on the y-axis, time on the x-axis, blood is being shot out, rapid acceleration to a peak velocity, deceleration to zero velocity, and then this little, this little pressure wave here is the aortic valve snapping shut. So this is all systolic velocities of blood moving through the LVOT. What we do is we use a calculation package that the ultrasound machine has to trace that LVOT velocity time signature and to get the area under that curve, which is the velocity time integral, or the VTI. And the VTI is here. It gives you that number. That is the number that we plug into our Poiseuille's equation to calculate our stroke volume, pi r squared. So diameter divided by 2 times squared times pi times 20, which is the VTI, which gets you your stroke volume. If we go back and measure the heart rate, we can calculate the cardiac output. And if we want to be even more fancy, if we input the patient's height and weight, it will give us a cardiac index. Okay, so this is the, the calculation of stroke volume and cardiac output. Again, we went through this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm just sort of going through this fairly quickly. So that is, I think, the most useful quantitative uh, evaluation of LV systolic function. Okay, we're going to get to clinical applications in a bit. But the next piece of the LV uh, assessment in critical care is looking at left ventricular diastolic function. Uh, I will start by saying that diastology, yes, it is called diastology by the cardiologist. This is the study of cardiac filling. Uh, it's actually a, quite a vast and, and still evolving field within the framework of echocardiography and cardiac imaging as a whole. So it's a huge field with a huge amount of, uh, of techniques and principles to learn about. Um, there's a bunch of different components that you can look at using echo to assess diastolic function, things like uh, ventricular filling blood flow velocities, relaxation and filling times. We can look at velocities of ventricular tissue and so many more things. So it's a very broad set of skills and techniques. And the overall application of all of this stuff, this vast field of diastolic evaluation in critical care is fairly limited, but there are a handful of things that we can use diastolic evaluation for to help us out in the critical care setting. I think the two most useful are these here. We can use Doppler to identify pulses paradoxes, and we can use Doppler to estimate left ventricular and diastolic filling pressures. So I'm gonna talk about that real quick. Again, we, we talked about this two weeks ago when we were talking about volume tolerance. Uh, so again, I'm gonna go a, a bit quickly through the, the fundamental stuff here. But the first step in the diastolic evaluation is looking at the velocities of blood moving from the left atrium into the left ventricle in diastole. So what we do is we go into our apical four-chamber view, we turn on pulse-to-wave Doppler, and we put our sampling volume. So this is where we are measuring velocities within that bracket there. And we position that bracket just above the open mitral valves. Okay. And so what we're doing is we're interrogating the velocities of blood moving from atrium to ventricle at that spot right there. Okay. So what happens in diastole when you have a patient in sinus rhythm, um, so diastole begins where systole ends. So the heart, the LV has just emptied. It's just contracted. 
it's emptied its, its uh, uh, systolic volume. Um, the aortic valve has snapped shut. Systole is done. That is the beginning of diastole. Okay. Um, mitral valve is closed still. Aortic valve is closed. And while the LV was contracting and emptying, the left atrium was actually filling. So the pulmonary veins were pushing blood or, or letting blood into the left atrium. So ventricular volume here is small and uh, volume here in the atrium is big. So what's happened is there is a gradient, a pressure gradient between left atrium and left ventricle. Okay. Then we have repolarization and then diastole, the actual relaxation of the heart begins. As the LV relaxes, uh, this, this chamber starts to expand. As the chamber expands, the pressure in the LV rapidly drops. As the pressure in the LV rapidly drops, eventually the mitral valve swings open. And what we have here is we have an area of high pressure, a full left atrium, which has a relatively higher pressure than the now empty and expanding left ventricle. So what happens now is now that the mitral valve is open, blood flows passively between left atrium and left ventricle, down its pressure gradient. And what that does is it creates a wave called the E-wave. So this is the velocity of blood moving from left atrium and left ventricle passively. It, call, it creates what's called the E-wave here. Blood flows into the left ventricle until the pressures between the ventricle and atrium equalize. Once the pressures equalize, blood flow stops. You then have a pause called diastasis. You then have your P wave and your atrial kick. The atrium depolarizes and pushes whatever remaining blood or portion of remaining blood into the ventricle actively, creating what's called the A wave. Okay, So E wave is passive filling in the ventricle. A wave is active filling with the atrial kick. Okay, So patient in sinus rhythm, you see an E wave passive, A wave active. Okay, this is the beginning of the diastolic evaluation, and it just gets totally detailed and crazy from there. But there is one application that we can use it for. So here's just a sort of a real life looking uh, tracing of E wave and A wave. Okay, so you have E here, A here, E and A, E and A. And what we do is we freeze it, and we just simply use a caliper to measure the um, E wave velocity, which in this case is about 150, uh, and the A wave velocity, about 70, 76 or so. So what do we use this for? Uh, in critical care, one of the, um, I think, most urgently useful applications for what are called mitral inflow velocities, so the, the, the velocity of blood flow moving into the uh, ventricle, is looking for what's called mitral inflow variation. So mitral inflow variation is basically the Doppler demonstration of heart-lung interaction physiology. We talked about this again a bit uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how Plural pressure changes affect cardiac filling. So if you remember back, we talked about how as the patient breathes, um, whether on positive pressure or negative pressure, when the plural pressures and its thoracic pressures become positive, ventricular filling is reduced. And then as the plural pressures swing towards negative, ventricular filling is enhanced. Um, and so what you get is you get um, basically variation in ventricular filling with respiration. Uh, on Doppler, that is manifested as a variation in your E-wave velocities. So as the patient breathes and the plural pressure changes, the E-wave velocity, the passive inflow velocities are going to change. They're going to vary. Um, everybody has some degree of E-wave variation or mitral inflow variation. But, and the way we calculate mitral inflow variation 
is by taking, measuring the biggest E-wave and then the smallest E-wave within the respiratory cycle, the difference between the two divided by the biggest E-wave, and that's the mitral inflow uh, variation. So like I said, that's a physiologic uh, phenomenon. Everyone has mitral inflow variation to some degree, but if you have an exaggerated degree of variation, what's defined as more than 25%, uh, that is pulses paradoxus. Um, so we know that pulses paradoxus is a misnomer. It's not a paradoxical response. It's just an exaggeration of the normal physiologic change in cardiac filling that occurs with respiration. So we can use Doppler to identify pulses paradoxus. If we identify E-wave or mitral inflow variation of more than 25%. Now, can anyone think of why that would be clinically useful to us in critical care? This is for tamponade. Yeah, exactly. So this is to uh, identify uh, tamponade. So one of the earliest uh, findings in tamponade, one of the earliest echocardiographic findings in tamponade is the finding of pulses paradoxes. So it's actually probably the most sensitive uh, finding of, of quote, tamponade physiology on echo. So if you have some sort of cause for tamponade, if you have a big pericardial effusion, you know, big mediastinal mass, mediastinal hemorrhage, and on top of that, you see pulses paradoxus, that may be an indicator of early uh, cardiac tamponade. So as tamponade physiology progresses, the first thing you see is pulses paradoxus. The next thing that you see as tamponade evolves is atrial collapse. Then eventually you see diastolic collapse of the RV. And then finally you see hypotension. So identifying pulses paradoxus in someone in whom you are concerned about tamponade, like they have a big pericardial effusion, as you can see in this patient here, then that is an early indicator of tamponade. So I think this is probably the most useful application of diastology uh, in critical care. The other parameter we look at with diastolic evaluation is tissue velocities. And again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In addition to looking at blood flow velocities, we can actually look at how fast um, what's called the, the mitral annulus is moving in diastole. Okay. And so we talked about last time how in diastole, really two things happen. One is the heart um, fills. As the heart fills, blood volume changes. And we detect that by Doppler evaluation of the LV just near the mitral valve. And the other thing that happens is as the heart expands and actually changes shape, what happens is the mitral annulus is pushed downward. It's pushed down towards the atrium and then outward. And so we can measure the velocity of that outward and downward displacement of the mitral annulus by using what's called tissue Doppler, which is a subtype of pulse wave Doppler, which is optimized to look at tissue velocities. Okay, so what we do is we take our... Um, tissue Doppler, we put our sampling bracket right in the sort of center of mass of that triangular shaped uh, mitral annulus, and we look at velocities. So again, in diastole, that, uh, uh, that mitral annulus moves downward, so the velocities we're interested in are the ones that are moving downward. So just like you have a passive wave of diastolic blood flow movement, the E wave, and an active wave caused by the atrial kick, the A wave, if a patient's in sinus rhythm, you have similar motions of the mitral annulus. So the annulus moves down initially with passive filling, creating what's called the E prime wave. And then with the atrial kick, it's pushed down again, creating what's called the A prime wave. Okay. And so again, we can measure the velocities of each of these waves using calipers. 
And here is the E prime velocity right here, 16 centimeters a second. Okay. And the way we use these values in critical care is something we again talked about a couple of weeks ago. We can use the ratio of E velocity to E prime velocity to estimate the left ventricular and diastolic pressures or filling pressures. And, and the reason we can do that is, you know, basically the, the, the two things that affect E wave velocity or blood flow velocity are the pressure gradient and the blood volume. Um, but the only thing that affects uh, E prime or mitral angular movement is the change in volume. So it's the change in volume that's causing the ventricle to deform and push the mitral annulus downwards. So if we ratio or divide the E wave by the E prime wave, we're essentially canceling out the effect of volumetric change and looking specifically at filling pressures. Okay. And so what has been determined is that if the E to E prime ratio is more than 15, that is suggestive of elevated left ventricular and diastolic pressures. If the E to E prime ratio is less than eight, that is indicative of normal left ventricular and diastolic pressures. Between eight and 15 is a intermediate or indeterminate zone, doesn't tell you anything. But if it's low, that means normal filling pressures. If, it, if it's high, that means elevated filling pressures. Okay, so that's how we use uh, diastolic evaluation. So why? Why are we doing all this stuff? Uh, if we can just get most of our energies in qualitative assessment, what specifically does quantitation help us with? So we talked about a couple of weeks ago how we can use LV quantitation to predict volume responsiveness by using our passive leg rates or by calculating stroke volume variation if you have the right, the right kind of patient. Okay. Some other things we can do is we can actually measure the specific objective left ventricular response to our chosen intervention. So if we decide on volume, we can see how well or how poorly the LV is responding, how much the stroke volume is changing. Same thing with inotropes and diuresis and application of positive pressure and PEEP. And also some of the things that we may do to affect RV afterload. We can see what the effects of stroke volume are, uh, what the effects to uh, stroke volume uh, are, are done by these by these changes okay also if you have a patient who's in shock uh, and you don't really know why it's tough to figure out why it's not it's not obvious based on your qualitative assessment uh, then you can use some of this quantitation stuff to help narrow down what type of shock physiology may be in play so I'm going to go through some examples of applications we talked about this a couple of weeks ago using VTI uh, to see our change with passive leg raise we talked about how an increase in your VTI by more than 12% with a passive leg raise is highly predictive of volume responsiveness. And we talked also about once we've chosen fluid bolus as our therapy, we can actually see what the net effect of each fluid bolus is on our cardiac output. And we can use this net effect, this net change to construct sort of an individualized cardiac function curve. We saw this last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago where, you know, our initial two or three boluses have sort of an ascending effect when it comes to cardiac output, then eventually you get a flattening out. So here's where you can identify when a person transitions from ascending portion on their cardiac function curve to a flattened portion, and then decide to stop giving fluid and turn to other therapies for shock. So again, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and you can do that with any sort of intervention. So let's say you're trying to titrate your optimal dose of inotropes. You can see again, the net effect of change in cardiac output with each up titration of your dobutamine, like we see here. You can do the same thing with things like volume removal or diuresis. You know, so ideally if you're diuresing someone who's in shock or, uh, or, or may have maybe volume overloaded, what you would want is you would want the cardiac output to improve 
or at least say stay stable as you're removing fluid. Once you reach the point where the cardiac output drops with ongoing volume removal or diuresis, that may be a time to stop or at least slow down. Same thing with PEEP. As you're titrating PEEP, uh, you want to see the effect on the hemodynamics. A great way to do that is to see what, what changes with your stroke volume and cardiac output as you titrate the PEEP. Okay. Um, and again, you are never using this stuff in isolation. Uh, this is what I consider to be sort of like an early or a real-time data point, change in cardiac output or stroke volume, that is, that you can use to, in to integrate with all of your other info, your clinical exam, your biomarkers like lactate, clearance, and SCVO2, creatinine, and things like that. What this allows you to do is allows you to be more nimble when it comes to things like deciding when to continue or stop volume removal or stop giving fluid. Okay, so this is one of the ways that you can use LV quantitation. The other way, uh, or one of the other ways, one of the other major ways is to help you differentiate a sort of not so straightforward shock physiology. And I want to go through a quick, quick, quick case to sort of illustrate that. Uh, this is a case that we had a couple of years ago, um, and we've had a, had similar ones as well, but this one really sticks out. This is a 60-year-old lady with a history of a fairly bad heart failure, systolic heart failure, who was uh, admitted with hypotension and lactic acidosis, uh, was admitted to medicine uh, with thoughts that it was because of volume depletion and possible sepsis. Um, the patient got some fluids, got three liters, which initially helped, both blood pressure-wise and lactic acidosis-wise, then, you know, after a while, you know, after getting that third liter, the lactate and blood pressure got worse. So they started to get concerned. Now, this was a patient who also belonged to the our, our advanced heart failure service, and so that service was consulted, and they saw the patient, and they thought the patient was volume overloaded uh, as a result of the resuscitation. So they said, diurese the patient. She has a bad heart. She's volume overloaded. She's a little short of breath. Uh, her lactate's going up. Um, diuresia. So they did. And the lactate got worse. Uh, and then they're like, okay, well, we don't really know what's going on. Let's just take the patient for a right heart cath so we can figure out what's going on. As this process was going on, uh, you know, the lactate sort of, you know, got a little worse. The hypotension got worse. So the patient was admitted to the medical ICU because they were on a medicine service. They came to our MICU. In our MICU, uh, one of the fellows on uh, did this echo. So who would like to interpret this echo for me? Just real quick. I'll already stipulate it's a personal long axis view. So what do we see here specific to LV function? All right. Uh, so let's see, who do we have here on the... Hey, Arturo, are you with us? Yes, sir. All right. What do you think of this? Uh, what do you think of this uh, personal long? Uh, I would say it's probably uh, moderate to severe uh, dysfunction. And the reason I say that is because the uh, you look at the chamber, uh, there's not a very good excursion. The anterior leaflet's not really slapping the, the septum. And then you don't really have doubling of the uh, of the muscle at the at the walls. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I agree. And, and you're a little generous. I would, I would definitely call this severe. It looks like global LV dysfunction. Um, and here is the patient's uh, short axis view. Um, what do you think about that? Any, any different or do you, do you sort of agree with the original assessment? Yeah, I would agree with my original assessment. Yeah. Pretty bad LV function, right? I mean, if you, 
you know, I like still like to put my finger in the middle of these <clears throat> shorts and you want all the walls and, and, and muscles to sort of thicken and move towards the finger. And they're not really doing that. Um, at least the septum's not flat, but you know, the LV is not doing well at all. That's um, and then we saw this. What do you see here? Anyone else want to take this? This is, a, this is an easy one. What are we looking at here? Just shrunken IVC. Yeah, so this is uh, this is the IVC right here, and it's essentially a potential space. It's a virtual IVC. So I have a patient with really bad LV function and a flat IVC. So the patient got to the ICU, and you know the fellow saw this and uh, had had a plan in mind, but heart failure said, "Well, just hold on. We have the right heart cath already scheduled. I don't want to make this patient any worse." Um, we know this patient really well, so I don't want to make her any worse. Let's just take her to the cath lab. Let's do a, she's already, everything's already ready to go. We'll do the right heart cath. We'll figure things out. Uh, and then we can tell you what, what the approach should be. Don't do anything. Don't get fluids. Don't diuresis uh, until we do the right heart cath. That's what the fellow said, cardiology fellow. Um, and then the attending came and said, well, you can try a little more Lasix in the meantime, if you want. Well, our, our fellow did this. She did a... DTI with the head up and legs down, 11.5. Head down, legs up. DTI went to 14.6. Did the math. That's about a 27% increase in stroke volume with the passive leg raise. And just for fun, calculated the cardiac output. So we got the heart rate and, and the LVOT diameter, everything. Cardiac output of 4.7. And for this patient, that's a cardiac index of 2.8. Just to be sure, try to identify the filling pressures, estimate the filling pressures. So the EDE prime ratio in this patient uh, is seven. So what does this tell you? What type of hemodynamics do you, do you sort of ascertain from what we see here? All right, next on the list, uh, Carrie. Uh, I'm a med student just tuning in who's working with the, the critical care, like some of the staff. So Very good. I you got the pass. link. I just wanted to learn, but I don't think I know enough to know this part. I could have done pass. some of the echo maybe, but not this. Okay, fair enough. So I'll, I'll summarize for you guys. So yeah, so we see quite an increase in stroke volume with a passive leg raise, a fairly normal cardiac output, cardiac index, whatever that means. Uh, but the ED prime ratio is less than eight. So that this indicates a volume responsive state and a low left ventricular filling pressure type of state. Well, the patient went, before anything can happen, went to get their right heart cath. And here's the data, here's the data that they got from the right heart cath. Output index, you know, not too high of a wedge, low right atrial pressure. And we just went back and just sort of compared what our Doppler findings were, our fellow's Doppler findings were, and what the right heart cath was. And you can see that they, you know, are pretty well in line. Cardiac output, cardiac index. A flat IVC gives us a low right atrial pressure. Our low EDU prime ratio tells us it's a, it's a, it's a normal, at least a normal uh, filling pressure type of state. And a positive, a positive passive leg raise. So what some of this quantitative stuff allowed us to do is to sort of do a non-invasive PA catheter. Where we were able to get the same data uh, and the same come to the same conclusion uh, without having to put it on at least 
you know, theoretically without having had to put a needle in the patient's uh, neck or chest. Okay, so that's just a couple of the ways that you can use some of the uh, quantitative uh, LV function assessment stuff. So any questions on the critical care LV assessment? I know I went through that a little quickly, uh, and I, by, by no means did I, did I do a comprehensive uh, review, but any questions before I go on to RV stuff? All right, good. So let's talk about the RV. So um, we'll start by reviewing the basic RV assessment. And again, you, you may have learned about this before, and we definitely covered this uh, during the summer education block. We talked about the three components of the basic or qualitative RV assessment. We talked about looking at the septal shape and septal motion. We look at the RV size, and then we also look at the RV systolic function. So septal shape and motion, the normal shape of the septum is that it's round and convex. The convexity faces the RV. And the overall profile in the short axis is a round LV. The septum moves along with the LV free wall. If it's abnormal, the septum will be flat or actually bowing towards the LV, creating a V-shaped LV in its short axis. Um, or you may see discordance of the septal motion. And of course, the parasternal or the subcostal short axis view are the two best views to look at septal shape and motion. Uh, any sort of septal abnormalities will show up in the short axis views before they'll show up in any of the long axis views, including the apical. Uh, it's important, of, of course, to be on axis with your with your uh, short axis view. So again, here is a normal septum. You can see that it is round and convex. The convexity faces the RV. In systole, it moves inward with the other walls of the LV, and then diastole moves outward. The overall profile of the LV in short axis is round. Okay, so this is a normal septal shape in motion. We then look at RV size. Um, and basically what we do is we assess the size of the RV in relation to the LV. We measure, or we either eyeball, or we can measure if we want to, the diameter of the RV versus the LV at its base in diastole in the apical four-chamber view. And we have to, again, make sure that we're on axis and not foreshortened with our apical four-chamber view. The normal RV size is smaller than the LV, or they talk about the 0.6 to 1 RV to LV ratio. The RV, RV is abnormal or dilated if it's the same size or bigger than the LV, quick and dirty. Okay, so again, we can either eyeball it, fairly obvious here that the RV is smaller than the LV, or we can measure it at its base, just above the annulus, when the mitral and tricuspid valves are open. Okay, so diastolic, comparative diastolic diameter of the RV to the LV. So that's RV size. Um, so let's talk about the quantitative RV assessment. So there's two components to that. The first is evaluating RV systolic function. Um, the TAPSI we did talk about during uh, our, our sort of basic RV assessment talks. I'll review that real quick. Then I'll go to a couple other uh, techniques out there. And then we also look at right ventricular and or PA pressures. And there's two commonly used techniques for that, which we'll talk about. So first, let's talk about TAPSI. Um, again, this, this should be reviewed. TAPSI is basically a measure of the degree of right ventricular shortening during systole. Shortening is one of the primary methods in which the RV makes its cavities smaller in systole. So one way we can measure the adequacy of RV systolic function is to measure how much shortening there is. And one way we can measure how much shortening there is is to measure how much the tricuspid annulus moves up towards the apex in systole and down during diastole. The normal degree of motion is anywhere between like 1.7 and 2.2 years. 
less than 1.7, 1.8 is considered to be RV dysfunction. And here is, you know, the demonstration of that. You can see that in systole, that tricuspid annulus, which is where the valve attaches to the three walder, moves up in systole and down in diastole. And we can measure how much movement there is, um, either in two dimensions, um, or we can use M mode. What we basically do is we will take our M mode line and put it down through the center of mass of that tricuspid annulus, making sure that the movement of that annulus is as close to being parallel to that M mode line as possible. So you can see that as that tricuspid annulus bounces up and down, you want that to be as parallel as possible with the uh, M mode line. Okay, and we'll get uh, as we hit M mode, we'll and freeze. We'll see a curve that looks something like this. Okay, so looking at the structures that the end mode line goes through. Here's the apex, the LV, the septum, the RV, and finally the tricuspid annulus. This is what we see here, the apex, the LV, the septum, the RV, and finally the tricuspid annulus. And you can see that in systole, that moves up and it moves down in diastole, up and down. Uh, so I have one question here. If you fail to get the angle parallel, are you apt to be over or underestimating the tapsy? More often than not, if your angle is off, you'll end up underestimating the tapsy. Because you're going to be basically missing a certain part of that, a certain part of that motion. Very good question. Um, so here is a normal tapsy. You can see that that, that amount of excursion is 2.2 centimeters versus a dysfunctional RV, where that motion is less than one centimeter. Okay. So whereas tapsy is a measure of how much movement or how much excursion uh, there is in the tricuspid annulus, this uh, technique here called the tricuspid annular systolic velocity, or the S prime, is actually a measurement of the velocity of angular motion rather than the amount of angular motion. And uh, this, the velocity of the tricuspid annulus may be more representative, a measure of RV systolic function than just the amount of excursional load. So this may be more representative of RV function than, than TAPSI is. And instead of using M mode, since we're trying to measure velocities, we use tissue Doppler. So just like we use tissue Doppler on the lateral mitral annulus to look at diastolic velocities, we're using tissue Doppler on the tricuspid annulus to look at systolic velocities. So we get in our apical four chamber view. And again, just even more importantly than with M mode, uh, Doppler is that much more angle dependent. So again, we wanna make sure that we're lining up the motion of that tricuspid annulus with the Doppler line, okay? And we can tilt our view or we can slide up more lateral to get what's called an RV-focused apical four-chamber view to line that up even better, okay? But it's even more important to align up the angle with the S-prime velocity measurement uh, than it is with the TAPS, okay? So when we do that, when we uh, put our Doppler through and put our sampling volume right through the center of mass of that tricuspid annulus, what we will see is something that looks like this. So in systole, uh, the annulus moves upward. So these are the systolic velocities, and then diastole moves down. Okay, so what we're looking for is we're looking for the peak systolic velocities. So we freeze it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of glossed over this before, but everything that we do with quantitation, we should always do in expiration. And the reason for that is oftentimes what we're doing is we're following the change of these numbers over time. So we want to make sure that we're being consistent with where in the respiratory cycle we're measuring these things. So just by convention, all the measurements we do in critical care are done in expiration. So do the same thing with echo stuff, okay? So what we do is we wait for the patient to breathe out and we hit freeze. 
and then we get a caliper and we measure that systolic velocity. It's just the velocity of the tricuspidate is moving upward. Okay. Uh, and the way this is used is more to diagnose RV systolic dysfunction. So if your S prime velocity or your annular systolic velocity is less than 10.5 or less than 11, depending on this, the, 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 the study you look at or the source you look at, that is indicative of RV systolic dysfunction. And this has been shown to correlate pretty well with uh, volumetric EF measurements, like with radionuclide imaging. Okay. So that is a second modality that we can use to look at RV systolic function, the quantitate RV systolic function. A third method is using the VTI of the RVOT. So just like we use the LVOT VTI to actually calculate stroke volume, we can use the VTI of blood moving through the RVOT to sort of get an idea of what the RV stroke volume is. We can't actually calculate the RV stroke volume because there's no way to accurately measure the RV uh, um, diameter to get the surface area measurement to put into our Poiseuille equation because uh, there's no view in TTE that adequately, that accurately gets us that measurement. So while we can't actually calculate stroke volume, we can follow sort of the change in stroke volume by following the change in RVOT VTI. And the way we do that is we get a view where we're looking at the RVOT. So this is a peristernal short axis view where the probe is angled anteriorly, angled upward. So we're pulling in the right atrium, tricuspid valve, right ventricle, pulmonic valve, pulmonary artery, and then right here is the RVOT. This here is the aortic valve annulus, and just below that is the left atrium. So this is your RVOT right here, just proximal to that pulmonic valve. So what we do is we turn on pulse wave Doppler, and we put our line, again, parallel as possible through the RVOT, and we position our sampling bracket just above the pulmonic valve, just like we did with the LVOT. And when we turn on Doppler, this is what we're going to see. Uh, I'm going to talk about this in more detail later, but notice how the shape of the velocity time signature is different. Notice how it is more gradual of an acceleration to a peak and a gradual, almost symmetric deceleration, almost sort of like a parabolic shape. This is uh, sort of indicative of how the RV contracts. Okay, the RV is not quite as powerful as the LV, so that acceleration to peak takes much longer. Uh, and just like with LVOT VTI, we trace that VTI signature, uh, and then we get the area under that curve, and we can use that as sort of a analog for RV uh, uh, stroke volume. Um, there's been a number of studies, and the data on this application are still sort of being uh, added uh, and being studied, uh, but what we have so far is that a low RVOT VTI, thought to be somewhere around under 10 or under nine and a half is indicative of RV systolic dysfunction, okay? So that's systolic function. The second piece of the quantitative RV evaluation is pressure estimation. And there's two methods we can use to, to do that. The, the most commonly used method is using TR jet velocities to estimate the systolic PA pressure. And this is used by utilizing what's called the Bernoulli principle. Um, and what we do is the first step is identifying TR. And there's three views where you can find TR. The first view is your parasternal long axis view, where you angle the probe downward to make the aortic valve go away and the tricuspid valve to appear. So you would see TR here is the right atrium, it's the right ventricle. 
The second view is the, the view we had just talked about, where you have the right atrium and tricuspid valve here. You would see TR over here. And of course, the apical four-chamber view, where you can see TR over here. So first you find TR using color, and you can see the TR jet here. You would turn on Doppler, and you would actually use a mode called continuous wave Doppler. And we're going to go over this in detail during winter education block. Uh, and you align your Doppler beam to be as parallel as possible with the direction of the TR jet. And then we turn on Doppler. And what we should see is this sort of parabolic-shaped curve of regurgitant flow. So this is blood being regurgitated back from the right ventricle into the right atrium. You can see that parabolic shape, just like we saw with the RVOT VTI, velocity time signature. And what we do is we freeze it, again, in expiration, and we can use a calculation package to measure the peak velocity, which is here, the, the maximum velocity of TR jet. And if we plug that into the Bernoulli, the simplified Bernoulli equation, which is we square the velocity multiplied by four, that gives us a fair estimate of the pressure gradient between the right ventricle and the right atrium. If we add that pressure gradient to the right atrial pressure, that gives us a fair estimation of the right ventricular systolic pressure. And again, we'll go over this in detail uh, in the winter. Okay. How do we estimate right atrial pressure? Well, if you have a patient who is not intubated and cooperative, you can look at IVC size and inspiratory collapse to estimate your right atrial pressure. And this is how we do it here. The smaller and more collapsible your IVC is, the lower your right atrial pressure is going to be. Okay. But this only works if a patient is not intubated and cooperative to do a sniff. Otherwise, just follow the pressure gradient. Okay. Like I said, most of the time we're doing this to sort of look and see what happens to that gradient with some sort of intervention. If you don't have TR, you can use this method, which is called the PA acceleration time method, to get an idea of the pulmonary arterial mean pressures. And this is based on sort of pre predictable changes in the shape of your RVOT velocity time signature that happens when pulmonary artery pressures start to elevate. Okay, so we saw the normal looking, and you know, we get in this view again, so our normal VTI view, RVOT, uh, we put our pulse wave Doppler just above the pulmonic valve. And again, normal looking signature should be something like this, parabolic shape, gradual acceleration to a peak, gradual deceleration to the end of system. So parabolic shape, okay? But as pressures start to elevate, um, either because of downstream elevations and afterload or upstream uh, hypertrophy, what'll happen is instead of having this parabolic shape, you'll start to see a velocity time curve that looks something like this. And this should look familiar. This looks like the LV velocity time signature. Because the LV signature is being generated by a muscular heart pumping up against a relatively high afterload type system. So you go from a low afterload, low resistance system, parabolic shape, to a high resistance, high afterload system, LV looking velocity time signature. And what we do is we measure the time it takes to go from zero velocity to peak velocity. And that's called your acceleration time, okay? So we can measure that by selecting, again, another calculation package, which gives you two lines. You put the first line at the beginning of the uh, uh, systole, and then the second line at the peak, okay? And the higher your pressures are, the shorter your acceleration time is gonna be, okay? Because that, that blood is being accelerated out much quicker. 
and the overall velocities are lower. Okay. So the acceleration time is inversely proportional to the mean PA pressure. And there's a couple of derivation equations that have been generated. Uh, and this, these have been validated uh, several times over. Um, so depending on what your acceleration time is that you've measured here, you use one of these two equations to estimate your mean PA pressure. And if you have a heart rate that's less than 70 or more than 100, you would um, take whatever value you got from one of these two equations and then correct for your heart rate like this. Okay, so sort of complicated, but again, we'll go over it in detail during winter education block. But basically what this is, it's using acceleration time to estimate your mean PA pressure. So again, why are we doing this? What's the purpose of it? So most often, uh, we're doing it to gauge the RV's response to various interventions. So we know that the RV can be very sensitive to things like changes in preload, whether it be with fluids or diuresis, uh, changes in uh, uh, airway or, or pleural pressures, like when you are intubating a patient or when you're increasing the PEEP, uh, or if you're actually deliberately giving medications to lower RV afterload, uh, then that, of course, will have uh, changes. And we can actually use these methods to objectively see how well or how poorly the RV is responding to our interventions. You can also use some of this stuff to narrow down the etiology of your RV, afterload, RV overload. Okay, so you can use this stuff to determine, is this pressure overload that I'm seeing, is it acute or is it not so acute? In other words, should I be concerned about PE more or less? Okay. And there's a bunch of different prognostic implications to some of the uh, quantitative findings that we can use, uh, specifically in conditions like submassive PE and ARDS. So I'm going to talk about a couple of these. Okay. So um, the first thing we'll talk about is what's called the 60-60 sign for the diagnosis of acute submassive PE. Um, and if anyone sort of heard about that, just let me know in the chat. But this is some this is a, a, a um, collection of methods which is getting sort of more and more sort of uh, uh, um, scrutiny now and more and more study now. So what's the 60-60 sign? So it's based on two measurements. The first measurement is the measurement of the PA systolic pressure. So if your PA systolic pressure, this is your pressure gradient plus your right atrial pressure in someone who's not intubated, of course. If it's less than 60, then that suggests more of an acute corpulmonary type of process because the RV can only, so the RV can only generate very high pressures over time, okay? Uh, so if you have a PA systolic pressure of like 70 or 80, there's some degree of chronicity to that, okay? If it's less than 60, then that suggests that this is, you know, possibly this is an acute rise in, in uh, um, right-sided pressures and PA pressures. If you combine that with the second 60, which is a PA acceleration time of less than 60 milliseconds, then that is suggestive of a significant elevation in proximal RV afterload. So the lower your acceleration time gets, the more likely it is that what you're seeing is a proximal uh, elevation in RV afterload or PVR. So if you combine a low, relatively low PA systolic pressure and a very low PA acceleration time, then what that suggests is the acute development of proximal pulmonary arterial occlusion. In other words, you know, concerned, concerning for PE. So if you have someone that has a big RV and you see the 60-60 sign, that just lends even more credence to the idea that what you're seeing is possibly because of PE and should probably act on it. And this is sort of a, a pictorial sort of a, a illustration of the 60-60 sign. PA, PA um, 
acceleration time less than 60, piezostolic pressure less than 60. The second thing is looking at uh, morbidity and mortality or prognosis in the setting of submassive PE. We know that submassive PE is sort of a garbage can term uh, of a bunch of different sort of uh, uh, disease entities where there's a huge variety, a huge variability in disease severity, morbidity, and mortality and prognosis. So submassive P can include a P, which is a little bit of RV enlargement, all the way up to a, you know, a patient who has grossly elevated uh, PA pressures and RV systolic dysfunction. And obviously that second patient is going to have a much worse prognosis than the first one. So there are some echo indicators that we can use to help us sort of prognosticate or estimate the degree of morbidity and mortality we should expect from a patient who has submassive PE. So one thing we can use is uh, identification of acute RV dysfunction. So of course, if you have someone with a, an acute PE, submassive PE, and on top of that, in addition to having RV dilation or pressure overload, they also have RV dysfunction. That indicates that the degree of wall stress on the RV is markedly elevated, and you are starting to transition into RV ischemia as well. And these patients are, of course, prone to worse morbidity and mortality. So there's a couple of markers that have been studied, the TAPSI and the RVOTVTI. And what's been found is that if your TAPSI is less than 1.5 acutely, or if you think it's acutely, or your RVOTVTI is less than 9.5, your patient is more likely to have a higher degree of morbidity and mortality. So things like the likelihood to develop hemodynamic deterioration or need thrombolysis, the likelihood of developing cardiac arrest. And in a couple of studies, there's actually this has actually been correlated with increased mortality. Okay, and this all makes sense. Uh, but these are these sort of... Um, boundaries that have been established. So if you have someone with a new PE uh, and RV dilation plus a TAPSI of under 1.5 or an RVOTVTI of less than 9.5, and the latter may be more predictive, but we don't know yet, then this is a bad prognostic sign. So this is the type of submassive P that you should definitely bring to the ICU, I would say. Okay, so this is just another way that you can use some of this, uh, some of this stuff. Okay, so I hope that was useful. I hope it was uh, um, clinically applicable. Um, what questions can I answer?